The revolution is here. A movement of people free to live, work, and choose. We won't tell you what to think. We just demand that you think for yourself. This is Kibbe on Liberty. Jay, good to, good to finally see you. Good to meet you, Matt. Yeah. Here. It's, uh, it's at the timing of this conversation, I, th I think, is quite interesting because um, we're... I guess the uh, Great Barrington Declaration was signed in October of 2020. Um, so we're sort of three months out to the two-year anniversary. But, but the more interesting thing is that there's a brand new wave of mask mandates in L.A. County, I think, and other, other sort of blue areas. Um, and there's talk of, of new lockdowns. And it feels like Groundhog Day. Like, did we learn nothing over the last two years um, but you, uh, you're one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, and, and you've been outspoken about the unintended consequences, incredible humanitarian destruction that's been caused by this, this brand new paradigm of, of lockdownism. And I, and I want to go through all this. I just watched your Lex Friedman conversation, um, which, I, which I thought was pretty interesting, but it, it might... I wonder how many of your views have changed a little bit because of of where we are today. Is is there no learning in public health? It sure seems that way, Matt. I mean, I think uh, it's astonishing to me to watch people push for more of the same two and a half years after we've basically learned that no, not much of that worked. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, has caused, caused a tremendous damage to the poor, the vulnerable, working class people. Um, I think if you look, for instance, in, in I just saw a video from a teacher in Ella, in San Diego, basically I guess a superintendent in San Diego saying public school kids, if they're not, if they're going to come back, they have to come back masked, or else they're going to go have a Zoom school. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to threaten children to to interrupt yet another year of their education is just at this point, uh, I don't even call it an unintended consequence anymore. I mean, I think it's just, it's a basic violation of their human rights. Yeah. It, it seems like there's, there's sort of systemic institutional failure going on here, both in public health, in education, um, not inconsequentially. These are, are government-controlled institutions that perhaps are immune to um, accountability, I think. You know, Matt, you asked me what's different about, uh, so that, that Lex Friedman interview was about six months ago. Um, what's different now uh, is that we are a much more immunized population. We have much more uh, uh, immunity and protection against the disease than we did six months ago, than we did certainly two and a half years ago. Uh, a very large fraction of people have had the disease and recovered, and that provides pretty strong protection against severe reinfection. It's not that you can't get infected again. It's just that if you get reinfected again, it's likely to be less severe than the first time. Um, and that's just going to be, that's a fact. You can see it in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the epidemiological literature as true. Um, and as well, we've had immunized a very large fraction of the, the, the adult population. There really, at this point, is no p policy that we have to stop, to, that would stop the disease from spreading. And we shouldn't pretend like there is. We have to learn to no longer fear the disease as we once did. So I want to I want to dig deeper into that, and I specifically um, want to so, sort of uh, reset so that people understand who you are. And for those few um, people that don't know what the Great Barrington Declaration is, I want to I want to reset the history so that that people understand 
um, what you did, why you thought it was common sense, and why you became public enemy number one. But what, what are your qualifications? You're both an epidemiologist and a health economist. Yeah, so I have an MD and a PhD in economics. Um, I've been teaching at Stanford for 20-some years um, as a professor in medicine in the medical school there. Um, but I have been writing on infectious disease epidemiology for, for basically almost all of that time, although I write on other topics as well. Um, I, I uh, uh, in particular, when, in the early days of the pandemic, I uh, was in, worked on a couple of so very high profile studies measuring how widespread the disease was in, in April of 2020 using antibody tests. Uh, so antibodies are, you know, as you, as you know, if you get the, everyone knows now, you get the, you get disease, you then produce antibodies in response. Um, it's a measure of whether you've been infected. Uh, and and I, in those early days, we found that a very large number of people, much more than expected, uh, were already infected in Santa Clara County, California, and in LA County, California. Um, like 4% of the population, 3% of the population in April of 2020 were already infected, 50 times more than uh, than the number of cases to date that, that have been found. Um, that led me down this path of trying to understand how risky the disease was, what the risk profiles are. Older people are much more likely to be, be sick and, and die if they get the disease, you know, whereas young people are relatively unscathed. Um, and that then led in October 2020 uh, to, to the Great Barrington Declaration, which is a document I wrote with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University and Martin Kuldorf, then of Harvard University, uh, where we argued that given this risk profile and given the fact that lockdowns are so harmful to so many people, especially the poor, the vulnerable, the working class, it makes no sense to lock down a society. Instead, what we should do, the right thing to do, is, is focus protection of the old, the old and the otherwise people who are uh, susceptible to bad outcomes if they should get infected. So obviously by that point, um, lockdowns were, were the new paradigm. Did you think that what you were saying would be so controversial? I mean, I, I mean by October 2020, I, I didn't have any illusions about the controversy around it. It was, it was really clear, although there were some people at the time saying that lockdowns weren't going to come back, it was really clear that, there, that, that, that politicians and public health were pushing for more lockdowns. Um, we'd already had the March lockdowns uh, in, in, uh, in the United States and elsewhere that didn't stop the disease from spreading. In fact, it, as best I can tell, had very little appreciable effect at all uh, in, in getting rid of the disease. It may have protected certain, you know, like laptop class of people who, who could stay home and stay safe, but all, all the rest of society that served them got sick, um, or much of the rest of society got sick. So at, at that point, it was really clear to me that, the lock, the, that there was no point to the lockdown strategy. It wasn't going to all, at, at best what it does is, is move infections off into the future, uh, give some s relatively well-off people the illusion that they can protect themselves while the rest of society suffers. It's just immoral. At the same time, it's epidemiologically, it, it doesn't make any sense when you know that there is a class of people, older people, people living in nursing homes, who do need protection, who could be protected if you just put your mind to it. The, the, it, I feel like, um, I've read this and from credible sources that the whole lockdown paradigm had been debated and debunked and rejected by the health community generally um, in, in, during previous pandemics. Is that true? And like, why? who flipped the switch that said, okay, we're going to try this new thing um, with such obvious 
costs um, associated with that. Like, uh, I'm an economist by training, and, and I knew in March of 2020 that you can't just, there's no switch to shut off the economy, and more importantly, there's no switch to turn it back on. Um, this is this is not even economics, it's common sense. Um, but but somehow where along the way you you got this almost scientific attitude that we're gonna we're gonna sort of micromanage from the top down the entire globe when it comes to this pandemic. What what happened? Yeah. So if you go back to uh, the anthrax attack in two thousand and one, um, you know the 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 uh, it set off this sort of like you know chain reaction of trying to figure out how do we manage bioterrorist events how do we and then then there were the you know the the avian flu a, whole, a, a series of like of threats that happened during uh, in, in the uh, in the early part of the 21st century um, a lot of uh, a lot of people in the epidemiology community infectious disease community they they their instinct was well we maybe we could stop this by Putting some interventions in place, like very severe interventions that that were you know like stay-at-home orders and things like that. There was there was a thorough debate, and there were these pandemic plans where they would calibrate based on the level of risk. Uh, you know, it, these kinds of ideas. Um, th- these were thoroughly debated, just exactly like you said, Matt. Um, and uh, for the most part, in practice, they weren't used. So, for instance, two thousand nine, the H one N one epidemic. Uh, we didn't use lockdowns. Uh, we, we could have. I mean, the, the early estimates of mortality that the World Health Organization promulgated then were something on the order of three, four, five, much higher, very, very high percent uh, death rate from infection. Um, and yet we didn't do a lockdown. Right? Uh, it, it's, it's, um, uh, it's an unprecedented strategy that we actually ended up adopting in, in March of 2020 in, in the United States and elsewhere. Yes, um, why? I think the uh, the key reason actually has to do with the Chinese response and the Italian response. The world was watching the Chinese response. There was a sense that that, that China had hidden the full extent of the epidemic, and then in January 2020 they locked down their entire you know uh, this enormous city of Wuhan and, and its environs. Um, and then um, and, and then and it looked like it worked. It, uh, the you know the World Health Organization's telling people, oh look, they locked down, they stopped the disease, went went away. Uh, in late January, you started seeing cases in the United States. You saw cases in Iran. You saw, and then, of course, in Italy, there was an enormous outbreak in Lombardy. And there were, you know, like these pictures of people, of 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 of, of, of uh, older people in in coffins lined up in a cathedral because they didn't have enough, you know, people to bury them. I mean, I think um, those kinds of images, in the minds of public health, alarmed them. And, and that flipped the switch. It, they turned away from the much more sensible approach, which is a focused protection approach, the same approach we've taken to a century of respiratory pandemics, um, uh, and, and went back to the, 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 the thing that they've been talking about since 2001. You know, maybe, maybe, we, maybe we can just lock down society. I think it was incredibly naive in terms of the ability to actually stop the disease from spreading, and then it was also incredibly naive in terms of the the harms that would, was going to do. You're absolutely right, Matt. You can't turn off society and expect to have no harm come from it. Yeah, that, and, and it's not, I don't think it's probably a coincidence that the model comes, practically speaking, from, from China and the World Health Organization. I think there's a, an obvious strain of uh, sort of authoritarian central planning that comes along, uh, both, both the willingness to use that kind of power, but also the, the arrogance that, that you could 
know better than decentralized society how to deal with with a threat like this. And I, like you, you touched on something that that I've always wondered about. I have a theory that um, you know we we now I guess are allowed to acknowledge that the NIH was doing gain of function research. Um, Fauci denied it, but but my understanding is that the NIH has now come out and said, yes, we were doing that. And it's obvious that they were because Fauci himself was writing articles saying this is really important and the potential downside risk is is worth the price. Um, does this all come out of, of sort of a big influx of, of research dollars after, after 9-11? And because it seems like and this, this gets into sort of this scientistic arrogance that I'm really worried about. It seems like there's a lot of people being paid a lot of money to imagine all these worst case scenarios, go out and harvest um, potential viruses from bat caves, maybe manipulate those viruses. We, we don't know exactly the extent of that. So that there can be a central plan for every possible um, situation. Is, is that where it came from? Uh, I mean, I don't, you're part of this community. That's exactly where it came from. Uh, although I'm not part of the virology community that was part of this, but uh, I mean, I, I learned about this later, actually. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about the history of that. All right. So uh, in um, uh, 2000 and what was it 2005, I think was the was the the avian flu uh, and uh, the, the scare. And there, um, there was this the the there was a scare that the, the that this virus that was infecting chickens would make the leap to humans and then cause all kinds of damage and harm to chickens, uh, to, to humans, right, left, left from chickens, I think. Um, that led to a research agenda funded in part by the NIH and certainly by, by large scientific organizations around the world uh, with people like Dr. Fauci as proponents uh, of a research agenda to see whether uh, what, uh, there were viruses out there in the world bat caves and elsewhere, that have the potential to jump into humans. And the research agenda is very simple. What you do is you, you bring the, the, and simple to describe, it's complicated implement, but you bring the virus into, the, in, into a lab, you, you go, go hunt, hunt them elsewhere, you bring viruses that, 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 are, that are out in the, in the wild into the lab, and then you mutate them by running them through, through you know, civets or whatever. Um, uh, it, and you check to see how many mutations are needed so that it can infect a, a, a human cell in a, in a petri dish or whatever. Um, the, uh, the, if the if it doesn't take that many mutations, well, then this is a virus that might make the leap would be the, the inference. And then you can also then start to like make uh, uh, vaccines to address the, the threats, potential threats from viruses that are likely to make a leap, so that if if it does spread, you can have a uh, have, have a vaccine, some some remedy in place. Exactly, science is the scientific kind of approach to, uh, to 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 future threats. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Um, the idea then was, was actually implemented at, it, in, in 2012. There was a paper published in a, uh, in a big scientific journal where they actually had done, successfully done this. They found out that, uh, that a virus uh, in, in the wild could make the leap with just a few mutations. The, and this set off a firestorm within the, within the virology community. 
what ended up happening was a, a big p- counter push by this, by this group called the Cambridge Working Group that uh, forced the virology community to s- do a pause on this gain-of-function work. The NIH also adopted this pause on the funding of this gain-of-function work. The, arg- the counter-argument, and th- this is what the Cambridge Working Group made, was that, look, it's a really dangerous thing you're doing here. There's a long history of dangerous viruses leaking out of labs. Not intentionally. It's just, you know, when you're working in a lab, you know, 365 days a year, it's, it's very easy, even in a high-security lab, to slip up. And a slip-up means that, you know, the, the lab worker gets sick, they go home, and then they spread the, the, the virus out inadvertently to other people. Uh, I mean, that could, not just could happen, has, has happened with dangerous viruses repeatedly going back decades. Um, and so uh, the, there was this pause put where the idea was that, uh, that let's evaluate the procedures that labs do, let's adopt new procedures, let's try to like figure out ways to like make this safer. Although I actually I don't think it's possible to make it as safe. I mean, just it's just not possible to make it safe. Safe enough. It's safe yeah. enough. I mean, I think a, a, even one slip mm-hmm. could destroy the world, right? So right. it's just, you just it's, I mean, why do it? Um, but th- let's leave that aside. Uh, in 2014, then, there was this pause of gain-of-function work uh, put on by the NIH, meaning pause of funding. Every study that supposed to, was doing this sort of gain-of-function work had to be personally approved by Tony Fauci and, and Francis Collins, because uh, Tony Fauci is the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. They're the ones that are funding a lot of this viro- you know, viro- virological work. Um, and uh, so uh, what happened was that they actually did continue to sign off on some of these, and some, including on projects that were uh, cooperating with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where the uh, you know I think uh, it's it's it, you know the, the, it's uh, where this virus may have arisen. Um, so I mean I don't know for sure if it is, but that's 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 the uh, yeah the we still don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, in any case, um, the NIH then was funding this work into uh, even after during the pause, not 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 the same pace as before. And then in 2017, when Trump came into power. Um, the NIH uh, that had put in place a, a something called a, 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 a PPP framework, potential pathogens something framework, um, uh, where they would formalize the approval of these gain-of-function work. And so after 2017, they, in, in effect, Tony Fauci tricked Trump into this. I mean, Trump didn't know what he was doing here. Yeah. Um, and then um, we continued to fund it. I mean, this is not controversial. It's just a fact, uh, although I think Fauci actually denied it in, in, in front of Rand Paul. In Congress, yeah. Rand Paul in Congress, right? So um, uh, it's, uh, it's something that we should have had a much more public discussion around because, you know, it, it, there is some potential for good from it. Like you have a virus that you, you, you think might you know, cause a pandemic. Uh, we'll have a vaccine Im- available immediately. That's, that's the potential of it, right? But on the other hand, if in doing that research, you c- greatly increase the risk of the virus spreading, I mean, I think most people would just say no. Yeah. So when I, um, particularly going back to the early days of the pandemic, when when I don't understand what's going on, I use, as an economist, I use two basic frames to to try to better understand what what might happen. And one is sort of uh, Hayek's understanding of of decentralized knowledge and and how the, the, the local knowledge of time and place percolates up. And this is how we figure out complex problems in a in the face of radical uncertainty um, and to 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 replace that process with with a really smart guy at NIH that's going to sort of decide for us to me it sets off alarms before I even know what's going on 
And the other, the other piece is sort of a public choice Jim Buchanan kind of piece where um, even if you trusted um, that the people in charge knew the proper path to move forward, which is very difficult, if not impossible to find, you wouldn't trust them with that much power. And so I, I look at this whole debacle and this idea that we're, that we're harvesting and, 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 and manipulating um, viruses as, as, a, as a classic case of, of, of fatal conceit, as Hayek would use the phrase, um, because they, they, don't, they didn't know enough and, and even if they did know enough, they, they, they would have these, these sort of perverse bureaucratic incentives to do things that weren't necessarily in, in, in the public health. And I, I, think, I think those two frames now, two years later, look, look pretty damn smart. Um, but the question I have is the, the reaction of, of Fauci and Collins. And, and I, want, I definitely want to get into the infamous emails um, when you guys released the Great Barrington Declaration, we now know that there was an orchestrated campaign to smear you guys. And it, it, it seems like, um, was it, you know, were, were they covering something up or were they just so conceited that they knew that they had the plan? But, but tell, retell the story about what, what, what uh, these very important guys said about, about you fringe epidemiologists. <laughs> Um, sure. So, uh, I, mean, it's, it's, I, I gotta say, like, I, I, I'd, uh, I, I now have business card that says fringe epidemiologist on it. Uh, yeah. let, me, let me tell the story. Actually. You, you so, might as well own it. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, so, um, I mean, I'm kind of proud of the term now. Um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, when we, uh, wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, this is in October of 2020, uh, four days after we wrote it, the head of the NIH, Francis Collins, National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, wrote an email to Tony Fauci, uh, calling the, the three primary authors, me, Sinatra Gupta, and, and Martin Kulldorff, you called it the three of us fringe epidemiologists. I mean, it's, it's um, well, whatever, I'll just leave that well, aside, right? Stanford, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, yeah, right. fringe, fringe institutions, I, for you know, sure. It's, it's, I, well, the thing is, is, that's why he wrote that email. Right, he wrote that, he, and then he called for a devastating published takedown of the, of the premises of the, of the, the declaration. Um, he wrote that email because the, Institutions from which we wrote, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, threatened him and his lockdown strategy. Mm -hmm. it's, it threatened his, his, his underling, Tony Fauci's strategy. Right? It was uh, when we wrote the declaration, uh, almost uh, hundreds of thousands of regular people signed on to it. Uh, people sent in from around the world, they sent us translations of the documents, a page document. You can go look it online, see if you think, find it controversial. Um, it, and it, uh, they, they sent us translations in, into 30 different languages, almost immediately we got tens of thousands of scientists and epidemiologists signing on. What the Great Branton Declaration did, the, the, the reason why it was important is not actually the ideas in it. The ideas in it are as old as the hills. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the reason it was important is because it told the world that there was not, not actually a scientific consensus in favor of lockdown and the lockdown strategy we adopted. And that's why Tony Fauci and Francis Collins acted the way they did. That was the threat. It, uh, it undermined the illusion that there was a consensus around this lockdown, and they couldn't abide that. Now, this goes back to your, your point about Hayek um, and, 
and Decentral. I mean, I, I'm just like trying to imagine what Hayek would have made of the interchange between Rand Paul and, and Tony Fauci in the Senate, where uh, very famously, uh, t- Tony Fauci's response to Rand Paul was like, if you, look, if you're criticizing me, you're not simply criticizing a man, you are, you are criticizing science itself, right. or something cl- very close to that. I mean, it, it, in a sense, it's like this, this like, you know, la science c'est moi, like the Louis XIV kind of moment for, for a, a, a science bureaucrat. Right. The arrogance is almost unbelievable. Uh, and it, uh, the, the Great Barrington Declaration, what it did is it punctured that arrogance because it said, look, there are a lot of prominent, well-known, completely reasonable, not actually fringe scientists who don't like that's the strategy you've adopted, um, who think that the, the strategy you've adopted is, is, was an enormous mistake. And that's why you saw the uh, at the, the the this this smearing campaign, and they you know they are, they're very effective at that. Like they have, um, I started getting calls from reporters t- asking me why I wanted to let the virus rip. Yeah, I never said those words. I never even thought those words. It's not in the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, it's a piece of propaganda designed to destroy the credibility of anyone who says it. Because my primary goal is to save life, right? Protect. Vulnerable populations, but old, old, you know, the 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 key tenant of the plan of the Great Barrington Declaration is focused protection of the old. Um, how is that letting the virus rip? I mean, and then and then there's this this sort of demonization of the idea of herd immunity, as if it's some sort of weird conspiracy theory or strategy. When in fact it's just a biological fact. Right. Right. This pandemic ends when there's sufficient immunity in the population. Uh, it's not now. What we, what we know is that, that 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 kind of immunity doesn't protect you from getting the disease over again. What it does, it'll be more like the other coronaviruses, where you can get them over again, but you don't get severely ill, right? Uh, so I think that idea that herd immunity is a strategy, they use that as a propaganda tool against, uh, in favor of lockdown, as if somehow the endpoint of lockdown strategy isn't also herd immunity. Yeah. So it's interesting that you're quoting Louis XIV because uh, in, in Hayek's critique of this mindset, the counter-revolution of science, he has this devastating, uncharacteristically sort of snide takedown of a French philosopher aristocrat named Henri de Saint-Simon. And Saint-Simon had, and he's considered the sort of the founding father of socialism, even though he his, one of his students coined the word, um, and, but he had this idea that you would um, create something called the Council of Newton after, after Sir Isaac Newton, and he would actually create temples to, to Sir Isaac Newton. And they were going to find engineers and scientists and, and, and put them on this council and basically give them the power to reorganize society from the top down. And I, 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 I remembered that watching this almost religiosity of, of I am the science, Anthony Fauci, and you know you can buy prayer candles <laughs> to Anthony Fauci on Amazon. And it's, it's, it just got really weird. I'm like, but it, I, I think it was ultimately like a propaganda campaign. If you, you can't question that, that faith in the science, otherwise you're a monster. You want to let it rip. You don't care about people. Um, and, and one of the first things you dealt with was this, this ridiculous argument that um, you can either focus on public health or you can worry about about um, the economy and dollars and and that would be that would be an awful thing because you know that's that's obviously these yeah. things these things are intimately intertwined you're you're a public health economist what are the consequences of of shutting down the economy just in terms of public health i mean that that dichotomy between lives versus dollars was always a lie from the very very beginning 
the, the, the question was, was on both sides of the lockdown equation was lives, right? Uh, in, pr in principle, before the, the idea was that lockdowns would save lives, people prevent people from getting COVID. Uh, although in, now we know that they didn't do all that, do all, all that well at that. Um, and, and as economists, we, uh, I would have expected economists to speak up and say, well, look, um, that's too simple. Yeah, you're, you're, you may save some COVID lives. We as economists maybe don't, don't know exactly how many. But on the other side, we know for certain that if you lock down a society, try to shut down its economy, suppress the, the, the freedom of, of billions of people to go about their lives, you will kill people. People will die as a consequence of it. It was always lives versus lives. It was never dollars versus lives. And yet that 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 simplistic um, sort of uh, 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 c comparison between lives and dollars it silenced so many economists from speaking up with what we normally would do, which is say, "Look, uh, there's some cost to this strategy that you're, you're, you're proposing." Yeah. Um, uh, the the uh, the just to give some sense of the practicality of it, like what it, what it actually meant. All right. So. Uh, in, uh, in rich countries, what it meant is that people stayed home with heart attacks and died from heart attacks rather than go into go in to get the ER because they were so afraid of COVID or that they were told that they wanted to keep hospitals empty, that they just died at home. Uh, people skipped cancer screening. So women will have late-stage breast cancer and die of late-stage breast cancer that, that should have been picked up earlier as a consequence of the lockdowns. We destroyed the, the, the schooling of millions and millions of, of poor children, especially those, those in, in public schools, um, f for basically nothing, right? Two plus years of, of educational disruption that they're never going to get back. And we know from the, the health, health economics literature that if you interrupt schooling for even short periods of time, you basically consign kids to a life that is poorer, that is that is less less healthy and shorter. One estimate suggested five and a half million life years lost in American kids just from the spring 2020 lockdowns alone. Um, that's in rich countries. I could go on. There's more more we could talk. The psychological harms we haven't even touched on. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Yeah. Um, in, in poor countries, now the world is interconnected, right? So uh, the last uh, 30, 40 years, one of the major uh, sort of good things that come out is, is that we've, we've interconnected the world as, and a, as a result, a billion people have been lifted out of poverty worldwide. Uh, how did that happen? In part, it happened because poor countries reorganize their economies in order to fit into this globalized, globe, sort of the, the broader global, uh, um, global economy. Uh, overnight, we just said, no, thank you. The consequences of that have been tremendously bad, right? So uh, the UN estimated very, very early on that 100 million people would be thrown into poverty as a consequence of this. Uh, I mean, that is 
actually come to pass. 100, 100 million people have been thrown into poverty. We're talking dire $2 a day of income or less poverty. Uh, tens of millions of people have been thrown into dire food insecurity, meaning they, they go to bed hungry. Uh, the, in, uh, in March of 2021, there was an estimate that the UN put out that 230,000 children had died in South Asia alone as a consequence of the lockdown, the, the, the economic dislocation caused by the lockdown, in particular through hunger and through and skipped vaccinations, right? That is the that is the cost of the lockdown. It's you can you can denominate it in dollars if you want, but don't make any mistake. It was not dollars that was at stake. It was lives of the poor and the vulnerable that was at stake when we decided to lock down, and they are the ones that have paid the price for it. You know, one of the things that you discussed with, with Lex Freeman, and I'd love to dig a little bit deeper, I mean, you mentioned a laptop class, um, but they're, they're very much, uh, lockdowns very much created a paradigm that almost sounds Marxist, where there are haves and have-nots, and there were essential employees and there were non-essential employees, and, and it's um, the, you know, just morally and economically, the idea that we could choose who is essential and not in an infinitely complex supply chain structure that, that affects people in India that we don't know. Maybe we don't even know India exists, but all these countries, it's, it's all intertwined. But, but the thing that, that's so infuriating um, two years in is the laptop class um, I'll, I'll generalize, but they seem to be the strongest advocates for continuing lockdowns, certainly in the first year and a half, um, because they had the sort of jobs that, first of all, they're, they're high-income people. They had the sort of jobs that allowed them to work from home, but they still expected, without even understanding what it was, the supply chain to work, which means they expected the farmers and the truckers and, and, the, and, the, and the pickers and the packers and that entire distribution network all the way up to that poor guy that's doing Uber Eats bringing food to their door. They had to work. Mm. Um, why don't, I guess, I guess people just don't understand that, that food doesn't magically show up at your front door. Maybe it's, maybe it's not, maybe it's not evil. Maybe it's just ignorance. I don't know. I mean, food, uh, electricity, uh, uh Keeping your house up, uh, the, the everything, the, everything. Right? The, like our society depends on billions of people we don't know working together to to, to, to essentially to sustain us, and that's true for everybody, right? Even right. the billions that are that, right. are that are that are doing the sustaining. Um, I think the difference between now and let's say 2009, when during the H1N1 epidemic, why we didn't do a lockdown, is 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 because we now have the technology to replace the jobs of about 20 or 30% of workers in the United States with work from home without any threat to actual to, to, to their to their job we didn't ha we, we had Skype in 2009 but not sufficiently su evolved so that it could actually replace work in, in a sense in a real sense the lockdowns arrived because of zoom yeah we didn't have zoom there's no lockdowns I think um, my team's gonna be happy to hear that zoom <laughs> is the devil in this because we <laughs> We did too much of that during lockdowns. I, I mean, it's like I, I don't blame people. It's just we have we have this new technology. How do we use it? But it, it's um, the, what it ended up happening is that there is a there you know there's something to the Marxist critique. There is a class structure of society. That's absolutely true, and it becomes clear that there is a class structure, and the the class structure of society is such that 
uh, that that the that this I've, I've been calling it a laptop class because just just to distinguish from, from people who, who could work from home from who couldn't right um, yeah the vast majority of the world population couldn't but the, the this this class could but the, this class had an enormous influence on in and and representation in the press and in the political uh, sphere and th- they really drive policy you can see that during the during the, the during the pandemic and they were s- scared of the virus. And they had the power to protect themselves with the virus through their influence on policy, and they did that. Yeah. Uh, by, by the way, the, the two industries that that were the primary advocates of lockdowns, the media, um, they they can all work from home. They did work from home, and and broadly speaking, um, the uh, bureaucratic class. Um, and and another thing that just infuriated me is I I think to a person the advocates of of lockdowns were the last people in line to uh, worry about, am I gonna get paid? Will I have a job? And that's particularly true in government. The money was flowing, and, and they never considered the, the idea that, that they would be impacted. So there's kind of a, um, you know, they're, they're living in their world and perhaps not appreciating the ripple effects for people that, that were told they couldn't work, and without work, they wouldn't have income, and without income, they wouldn't have food. Um, and, and more severe, obviously, in other countries than in ours. Um, I want to go back to and 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 I want to pick on this 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 bureaucratic class for a while because um, I think there's something something uh, there's there's a dangerous perversion in our institutions resulting from that the fact that they're they're um, fully financed and and unfireable and. Going back to the the Fauci Collins exchange, where you guys were fringe epidemiologists, and they they launched this this very effective propaganda campaign. Um, their incentives to do that, and 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 you and Lex Friedman talked about um, the, the respect that you have for um, Francis Collins, I don't, and you're welcome to weigh in on that. And I don't I don't know what you think about Collins and Fauci today, because you have been an NIH grant recipient. Um, where are you at today on this? Before I go too wacky on you, <laughs> I mean, I I, uh, I still respect Collins. I think the work that he's done as, as a scientist in his career is, was worthy of, of respect. He was the head of the Human Genome Project, a, a colossal undertaking that greatly advanced our knowledge about uh, of biological and the biological sciences. Um, and I also respect very much his strong uh, stance that faith is 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 not incompatible with a life in science. Um, you know, I think he's he's lived that through his career, and I still, I, I mean, I'm quite in in awe of that. Uh, and I, 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 it just makes me sad. Still, I mean, I, I don't I don't think I'm anywhere different. But I think we're human. They're human. Um, they, uh, I think the central problem they had was hubris, yeah. which is a characteristically human flaw, um, especially with someone high in power. You mentioned Buchanan earlier. I mean, that's a classic Buchanan trope, right? Is is uh, of someone uh, high in bureaucratic power. Thinking that they that they're smarter than everyone else in a sense, right? And that 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 that's it's almost Shakespearean in, the, in yeah. its downfall, yeah. right? Um, uh, the the so I think uh, I don't I don't I regret that it was them that 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 ended up doing these. These were people that I have have long respected, uh, and and, I, and I'm, I'm really sad that they they ended up being the people that that, that were subject that 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 were like uh, 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 vulnerable to this sort of this trap that they found themselves in. Like they yeah. thought they knew better how to manage the world than everyone else. Yeah, I think it's it's hubris and concentration of power were the the sort of one-two punch that that unleashed 
this disaster. Um, there, there is, however, this um, this inherent problem. You talk talk about the scientific process, and I think it's I think it's interesting because um, those of us that understand the iterative process of, of science, and and again going back to Hayek, the the trying to figure out how the world actually works, um, you would you would be um, almost clownishly arrogant to say I am the science, given that. Um, a real scientist understands how little we actually understand about how the physical world operates. And so you, it's a combination of humility. You have to know what you don't know. But but I suspect a good scientist is also um, a little bit arrogant, right? You, you, have, you, have, the, you have the hubris to say, I, I think I can figure out this insanely complex thing. But when you centralize all that, there's no check on the hubris. Yeah. And and I think that's that's what's going on. And I, I think this this mad science experiment that you're that you're going to catalog every potential risk, viral risk to humanity, and then come up with a central plan to respond to it. That that to me sounds like a, kind of a Frankenstein nightmare. It's almost like a science fiction novel come to life. Yeah. Um, I uh, I think uh, you know actually I, I love how you characterize it. You do have to have some sense that you 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 see the world. A, a, a little bit more acutely than every, every, everyone else if you're going to be a scientist. But it has to come with that check. Yeah. The check comes in the form of you have to run an experiment or check what the data actually show. And every scientist that's honest will, will have had ideas that then they look at the data and turn out to be wrong. That's what science is. Yeah. I mean, that's, in fact, that's, that, that's the experience of science for, for, for nearly for every scientist, every honest scientist, is that, that experience of looking at the data turns out you're wrong. And what do you do? You change, you, you alter your hypothesis, you, you learn, you interact with other scientists. And over time, what happens is you, 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 you know, the truth starts to come, come out slowly and painfully. Yeah. Right? I think that process is actually the fun of science, right? The, that, 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 that sense of like I'm at the, you know, I think Newton said it, it is he's sitting at the shore of a, of a, of a great ocean picking, picking um, the shells off, uh, uh, and trying to understand. I mean, that just, you know, there's a sense of like there's way more out there than we, than, than, than we know, but you just, you're, it's a great kind of discovery. Um, to replace that with I am the science is, is, is a perversion of science itself, I think. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, it's, it's you know, um, maybe you as, I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about the things that you got wrong. Um, I actually think that's unusual for scientists to say that because they are a little bit um, full of themselves, but the check is your colleagues. The check is is the 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 push and pull and critique that comes from your colleagues. And maybe it's good natured, but maybe it's like full on um, academic competition where I want I want Harvard to be the center of the universe, and you want Stanford to be the center of the universe. Um, it's just it's, it's it's a form of market competition where if you get it wrong. Um, you know that that somebody just as smart as you might might um, call you out, and that that would be tremendously embarrassing and damaging to your career. I think that that's partly why I've been I was so disappointed with with Francis Collins and with Fauci. Right, in order for science to work, that it has to be basically very freewheeling. Right, it, you can't a priori exclude from the conversation ideas or people simply because you think they're wrong. Yeah. Right, you have to allow the fact that even if they look ridiculous to you now, that they might be right, and then be, allow them to be part of the conversation in good faith. Instead, what they did is they engaged in a campaign to delegitimize 
a vast number of, of scientists who disagreed with them. Uh, that is a violation of the, the norms of science. In fact, it's not science anymore when they're doing that. Yeah. So we haven't said this yet, but practically speaking, these two guys um, very much controlled certainly the government allocation of research dollars, and, and that's a huge number. Um, but I suspect, you know, the imprimatur of the um, NIH and and I can never say Fauci's acronym correctly, but that imprimatur um, very much drives private research dollars as well. So they essentially have a monopoly on which which projects get funded and which don't. Um, that that in and of itself seems dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I think there are private funders, but uh, the NIH plays an outsized role in the careers of biomedical scientists. Uh, Fauci's NIAID in particular makes careers of people in virology, in immunology, in, in epidemiology, or, or, or breaks them, right? So at Stanford, where I teach, uh, for the longest time, what, what, in order to get tenure, in order to get promoted, uh, so that, that you could continue your scientific career there, you needed to have a large NIH grant. So it's not simply the money, it's, it's, yeah. it's the status that comes with that money from the NIH grant, that's, that's what they control. Um, and it's not just, you know, there's Fauci and, and Collins and the NIH. There are, there are other funding agencies. You'd think that they would be competing uh, in a different way. In fact, they, they, they actually move together with the NIH. It's just as the way you say that. I mean, the, the, yeah. and, and, it's, um, and it's, it's not a healthy environment. Like you, you, what you really need is some kind of decentralized competition within science so that's, that scientists can, in good faith, talk with each other and disagree with each other and learn from each other, not align with the, the, the head boss to say, okay, well, if, I, if he's in favor of lockdowns, I need to not say anything about my reservations about lockdowns. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch, you too can love liberty and look cool. And that, of course, is what happened, is that the, the incentives were such that, um, which, which doesn't explain the three signers of the Great Barrington Declaration, by the way, but the incentives were such that if you question um, the man who says, I am the science, you're going to get shut off. Your, your career is going to get damaged, maybe destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of scientists who signed the Great Barrington Declaration written me told me that they've been harmed. Their career had been harmed, right? They've either some of them lost their jobs, actually, uh, some of, for the act of signing it. So, in, in effect, uh, some of them um, lost opportunities for grants. Uh, they, 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 uh, their colleagues have shunned them. They're, they're, you know, it's it's an odd thing. Like they sign a a, a document that says let's follow the old-fashioned pandemic plan, and somehow you get sh- like you're uh, pushed out of the. Uh, the the scientific community ostracized ostracized yeah. the word I'm yeah. looking for yeah. Um, yeah it's 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 it is a it is such an odd thing like you would you would, normally would expect scientists uh, to embrace this kind of disagreement do you think um, has has this centralization of money and power is it different today than it was twenty years forty years sixty years ago I think so uh, so I, I before the pandemic I, I had been working on science policy and, and trying to understand. Uh, a, a puzzle, which is why we, we've been spending a lot of money on a lot more money on science than we previously had been, and yet by most measures of scientific productivity, the, the number of advances per dollar had, had shrunk. 
it's not that there weren't scientific advances. It seemed like we're spending a lot more per per scientific advance. Um, uh, you know, this, and some people have described this as, like Peter Thiel has described this as scientific stagnation. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the, the the part of the reason for that is, ironically, is this is is Francis Collins. That's really interesting to me because um, I worked on Capitol Hill between 92 and 96, and this is the Republican Revolution. Um, Newt Gingrich takes over in 1995. And um, for all of the, I think, um, heroic efforts to balance the budget and rein in the rate of growth of spending, um, his Achilles heel was science. And he was... uh, I'm pretty sure he was the guy that was celebrating the Human Genome Project, and, and they, they poured a lot of money into science, which might have fueled, um, perhaps unintentionally, the centralization. Yeah, there was a doubling of the NIH budget, right? I think of 98, the, 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 the Balanced Budget Act of 96 uh, had within it a doubling of the NIH budget. I, I don't remember exactly the yeah. le- which legislation did this, but I do know that uh, by 1998, when I started my scientific career, uh, the, the the NIH was flush with cash, um, and it was actually a very nice time to be a young young scholar because you could uh, you know you could more easily get NIH money to to, to work on your ideas, um, but at the same time there was as, as there was as I said earlier there was this push toward more centralization that was starting to come in um, within the NIH and the and the and the doubling I think has has. Uh, uh, has had both good and, and bad consequences as, as, as a result. I mean, I think the, the hubris that we've seen by uh, people like Collins, people like uh, Fauci are as a, con- as a consequence of this sort of in higher, uh, uh, sort of uh, higher up the hierarchy that in, the, in, in the mind of the public about where science belongs. So he, um, uh, Collins, to be clear, I don't know this history, but he, he has this tremendous uh, discovery and he rides that wave to become head of the NIH. Is that what happened? Basically, yeah. Okay. So we have this huge flow of new dollars into the system um, leading all the way up to uh, 2019, 2020. Um, and it has to be like a boom in the scientific research community. So, so naturally, um, this community, scientific researchers, um, feel pretty darn secure. And, and maybe completely um, separated from, from the, the, the anxieties of most moms and dads when they're trying to figure out whether or not they're gonna pay the rent and feed each other. Um, is the scientific community generally part of the laptop class? Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it, the scientific community is protected from economic downturns. The, their, they, their jobs often, most in many place times can be replaced with work from home, and they were. Uh, I think that partly fed into why uh, at least the most prominent members of the, lo- of the scientific community seem to be so favorable lockdowns. Uh, actually, I want to make a distinction between the scientists and doctors and the healthcare system. Healthcare system, uh, people who work in medicine actually are not part of the laptop class. Right? They actually were deemed essential workers so that they, that they had to come in um, and, and get exposed. And in many, in many times, that they, especially in the early days of the pandemic, they thought of themselves as, and were, doing something heroic. They were exposing themselves to a risk deadly virus to care for people who were, who were sick. Yeah. Um, they also, many of them, especially the most prominent members of that class, pushed for lockdowns. And it's, it's interesting uh, because I think if you, if, 
if you think about medicine as a vocation, uh, you know, it, it's it's a vocation where you you're supposed to devote your life to the well-being of the of the, of the patients that you're you're you're, you're caring for. Um, the uh, it's a it's a it's a uh, uh, the the, 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 the structure of this, of this vocation then is one of service. I am devoting my life to the, 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 the people that I'm caring for, right? Um, and so it's, it, it's, 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 it's in that direction the service runs. The lockdowns actually reversed that and said, look, you, the population, should suffer so that my job as, as, as a, as in, in medicine could be easier. Yeah. Right? It's a reversal of the norms of medicine, where uh, where it, medicine serves people, not people serve medicine. Um, and in, in a sense, it, it's, it, uh, it, it, the, the, the fact that medicine were so strong, especially the leaders in medicine, were so strongly in favor of the lockdowns is a violation of the ethics of the medical profession. Um, it, 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 it essentially transforms the doctor-patient relationship to one where the patient serves the doctor rather than the other way around. And, and that ethos, this us versus them, um, were m- more important than than the public, um, um, was was kind of a cancerous attitude that I think has is, is created so much of the societal um, unwinding and, and tribalism. But it, I watched way too many zombie movies, and it's always like the experts that have access to these elite facilities where they lock themselves down and they watch the world go to hell. Um, that actually happened in this case, and that's that's a new thing too, right? It, it they had the resources and they and they had the sort of authority to to do this stuff to us. Um, we can't let this happen again, which is why I, why we're having this conversation. I can't believe that we have to have this conversation. I would have thought quite obviously that the human damage, the mental damage, the damage to the economy, um, the even even something like 9.1% inflation, this is a predictable direct result of the government response where we locked people down and then we had to start giving them checks. Not enough to live, by the way, but um, a lot of that money went into the system itself. Um, how do we convince people that this was a humanitarian disaster? I, I do think we have to keep talking about this. Uh, I think if you just say, okay, well, this is something that happened two years ago, uh, let's forget it and move on. This, this will happen again, right? Uh, the, the idea that lockdowns are a way to address any social problem, uh, much less a, a health, a health uh, crisis like COVID, um, we, we need to actively and for substantive reasons reject it. And that means we need to have an honest discussion about what went wrong and why and then Commit to never doing it again, right? So I think um, the way that uh, with the the way that I'm thinking about this, you know, I think that it, it, there's a lot of people in the in the community, people who now formed around the, against the lockdowns, that want to criminalize this. They want to say, okay, well, let's let's put people who made these decisions in jail. I mean, I, but I don't, I actually don't think that's right. Um, I think the right way to think about this is a uh, in, in medicine um, when there's a, when a patient dies. There, there often there sometimes will be something called a, a, a morbidity and mortality conference, an M and M conference, among all of the physicians that were managing the patient, and that it's just a meeting afterwards to talk about what went wrong, and the ethos of that meeting is not to point fingers and say you did this wrong, you did this wrong, but just to say look this went wrong, let's not do this again, let's this and so that it's an opportunity for learning. Yeah. 
I think that's how we should do this COVID evaluation. Um, and I think, you know, there are countries that are starting to do this. Denmark is starting to do this. The, the UK is organizing a, a, a commission that's going to issue a report about the, about the COVID response. The U.S. has had a very dishonest evaluation by the, the, the U.S. House, uh, the, the Democratic-led House. Um, I mean, it's not, it satisfies basically no one other than, other than partisans, uh, where, where, where they pointed the finger at, at someone like Scott Atlas for pushing against lockdowns, uh, as if somehow he's the, the heel of the, of the show. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think um, uh, that has to happen, an honest evaluation. And I think, um, you know, uh, before that can happen, we have to be out of this fear, this, uh, the, the power of the fear mongers to induce changes in uh, policy has to, has to subside before you can actually have that. Uh, but I do think that, that that's going to come. I don't see how you can avoid it, man. Yeah. Uh, you, the, the damage is too great and the, uh, the failure too evident. I mean, I, I hear, and, and by the way, it's uh, particularly uh, noble of you to, to suggest that, that um, people shouldn't be held criminally accountable because the, the smear against you and your colleagues um, had real, real damage to your reputation and perhaps your careers. Um, but, but my concern is like, obviously, and, and we haven't even talked about the partisanship and the politicization of this whole process, but having um, some sort of objective assessment of, of what went wrong, that inevitably might, that, that, that um, accounting might be conducted by the same people that made the mistakes. And we've seen this with um, there was some sort of uh, um, phony research into whether or not there was a Wuhan leak and whether or not there was gain of function by the same people that would have been culpable had they found that there was a mistake. So how do you, how do you keep politics from continuing to define success and failure in this? Because that's what we've been doing for the last, it, well, two years, but much further. I, I don't have an answer. I'm not. I've never worked in politics before, man. Maybe you have an answer to that question. I I I uh, I, I think um, for me, for my part, what I can do is, and I'm going, I'm con- uh, and working on is uh, set the intellectual agenda for that evaluation when it happens. Yeah. Like, what are the questions to ask, right? I, I, th- I do think that the origins of the virus and the role of the NIH in funding gain of function work, all of that will will be part of that investigation. Absolutely has to be. Um, uh, by the way, that that that. Uh, yeah, I mean that 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 uh, is has, was so dishonest. The same kind of playbook that people used to to smear the, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration were used to smear people who suggested that this might have been a lab leak. Yeah, uh, same people too: Francis Collins, Tony Fauci, um, doing the smearing. Uh, and, and, and so, but uh, but the, but the bigger thing to me, the, the, where I have particular expertise, is on the public health response and the failure of the public health response. And there, we have to ask the right questions. About what the what the damage what damage was there actually what was actually happened, uh, how why evidence based standards for decision making were, were not adopted, how uh, did did, uh, did 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 public health use behavioral behavioral economics and psychological techniques to panic the population? Why didn't uh, the standard pandemic uh, of, of public health principle of, of of reducing fear, reducing panic. Why? Why were were those kinds of ideas thrown away? Um, what role did local public health play? Uh, what what autonomy did they have? How about how about? I think there's a lot of, of really important questions that have to have to be addressed uh, honestly uh, and won't be addressed unless you you know how to ask them correctly. So there's there's I, w- I want to go back to 
the incentive and knowledge problems because when when I saw um, Fauci and Collins' response to the Great Barrington Declaration, and when when I heard them um, so full throatedly choose winners and losers in the vaccine game, um, they had a horse in the race. Um, I not knowing anything, I've I've learned a lot since then. Not not really understanding at the time um, how the the market for innovation and discovery works. It's totally intertwined. Like the, the line between government and, and pharma companies is more blurred than I even imagined. Um, it struck me that um, there was um, a CYA factor. Um, not, not knowing what happened in Wuhan, their reaction suggested to me, wow, they're covering something up. And then when they were so clearly advocating for vaccine X, and sort of trash talks, talking vaccine Y, it feels like they had um, a financial incentive to do so. And I've since discovered that there is, in fact, um, the government has a stake in Moderna and perhaps Pfizer. I don't, I don't know exactly, but the it, again, like it seems like truth and public health had nothing to do with this. Is that is that too strong? I mean, Am I, I making you squirm a little bit? I, I, a little bit. I, I, I don't think they had nothing to do. I mean, I think there's mixed motives as, as in with all human activity. I think they, the, um, you know, so, so the, the vaccine, uh, the, you're absolutely right that the, that the origin of the virus, there was a cover-up, no question. Uh, if you look at the FOIA emails from Fauci and Collins in the early days of the pandemic in January, uh, February, they, there is no question, and it, it is you can't read them and not come away with the conclusion that they worked very hard to make sure that nobody thought would think that uh, that the the, 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 the the virus came out of a lab or that it was leaked from a lab, right? Uh, they 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 wanted to make sure they they wanted to turn that idea into a conspiracy theory. Yeah, and they used their. We power weren't we weren't even allowed to talk about that a year ago. This show would have gotten taken down from YouTube. <laughs> Hope, hopefully, it doesn't. But we'll see. Well, um, well, you know, I'm trying that. To see this. Um, I, but yeah, I think uh, you, what you're saying is that if we get taken down, it's going to be my fault. That's <laughs> just probably mine. Um, uh, but yeah, so I think there's no question that 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 they conspiracize that. Um, the, uh, the 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 development of the vaccine is a really interesting story, right? So uh, the 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 idea that you could develop a vaccine so quickly. That's something I got wrong in the earlier. Because normally vaccine development takes lo- a very long time. Uh, it wouldn't be something you'd expect to be able to, to both identify the right target for the vaccines uh, in, you know, in, in, the, in the sequence of the virus and also test it and then deploy it at scale within eight, nine months. That was unimaginable to me um, in, in March of 2020. I'm still stunned that we, that, that, that actually happened. Right, um, and that happened in part because of a public-private partnership. It happened in part because of you know President Trump said we're gonna we're gonna throw enormous resources into this this Operation Warp Speed. We'll buy doses of the vaccine even before they're tested, so we can deploy them at scale if if, if it just so happens that it turns out to be to to, to work right. Um, um, and uh, that 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 private-public partnership uh, definitely involved. Uh, 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 you know, so the NIH it, w- within the the, the 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 workings of the teams that developed the the the, the, the tested the vaccines inside at, at Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, uh, they uh, the NIH there's this act called the Bayh Dole Act, which allows the 
researchers at the NIH that work on some of the, the, the basic science advances and other, uh, other work uh, to share in the royalties. I don't know how much of a role that played in their thinking. Um, I have to say, I, like my sense about someone like Francis Collins or Tony Fauci is that they're not motivated by money. They're more motivated by their reputation. Um, but that doesn't mean that that they're that they're that, that we can you know just ignore the fact that that, that there were these incentives in place. Um, they absolutely played an enormously important role in what the policies that were adopted, both um, by the NIH and elsewhere, in in vaccine development and in vaccine deployment. And also in terms, like, so questions, for instance, is like why the push for the mRNA platforms rather than the adenovirus vac vaccine platforms like the J&J or the AstraZeneca vaccine? I mean, many other countries went the other way. Right? Why did the United States go this direction? Well, the NIH invested a tre tremendous amount of money in these mRNA platforms. Um, why did they do that? Why, why, why not put your eggs in multiple baskets, right, More, rather than just, just, just this one? Um, uh, th there's also this like legitimate question about what is the right role of of the public when when you're doing this kind of scientific work, right? I I think um, there to me that's like basic economic like you, there's there's this idea of externalities you well know now I don't have to t teach you but like the the idea is that um, if you have a scientific idea that is is not excludable right so the structure of DNA everyone benefits. There's going to be underinvestment by private actors in in trying to develop that idea because the, you can't you can't own it. So I, I think that there's a role for the NIH in investing in ideas that have that aren't aren't you know that that that, that, that have this sort of positive externality that that they have this you know this, this aspect where they're not ownable. Um, but at the same time, um, they shouldn't be picking winners in the private sector. Uh, and uh, the fact that the private sector uses these ideas, I think, is fine. I mean, they, in fact, it's a good thing. I mean, the whole purpose of science is so that everyone can use these ideas. Um, but uh, but what's happened is the uh, the the the, uh, the American government has become essentially vaccine salesmen, and not just any vaccine, just particular vaccines that that that, that the American government played an enormously important role in helping develop. Yeah, and that that to me seems like a pretty fundamental problem. I, I understand um, that we, we could imagine a world where public-private partnerships would sort of turbocharge the process of innovation. And by the way, I happen to be someone that has been highly critical of, of the FDA approval process and, and that it takes years and years and millions and millions of dollars. Um, and I'm an advocate of, of right to try um, the problem becomes on the supply side when the government says you must take this one and on the demand side that you must take this one, otherwise you can't have your government job or you're, you can't fly in a plane or whatever these, these very aggressive incentives they created, which in all practical purpose was a, was a vaccine mandate. Um, I, want, I want patients free to choose and I want choices on the production side so that, again, this, this decentralized market process and local knowledge and various risk preferences and all the things that, that make us um, uh, different as people, that to me would have been a more robust and safer way to respond to a pandemic. Um, and I, you, know, you can imagine this scenario in government, but this is not how government works. Government is, is big and dumb and it fails specifically when you need it not to. Um, so, um, and you, you probably disagree with me, but I, I, I would advocate a 
um, clear separation of science and state because I think the incentives are screwed up. So I think, um, uh, actually, there's two issues there. And I, I want to make sure I address both of them. Let, let me come back to the vaccine mandates because I think that's an incredibly important part of the, the conversation. I think they were an enormous mistake. Um, but let me talk about the science and, and, uh, and, and uh, society because that's a really interesting idea, Matt. Um, I, I guess I don't, I don't fully agree of a complete separation. Uh, what I do think is, and this is something I w didn't really realize until the, pandem until, uh, the, the pandemic, uh, is that science funders should have absolutely no role in health policy. There should be a bright ethical line dividing science funders and, and health policy. Because the, what happens is that the science funders, as we talked about earlier, have a tremendous power over the minds of countless scientists, which then leads to, given our, the, the way our society works, huge uh, uh, policies adopted on the basis of, of essentially force with very little opportunity for pushback. The, 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 so uh, someone like Tony Fauci can stay at the NIAID and, and help figure out which scientists ought to get funded, which scientists shouldn't, which ideas ought to get funded, which ideas shouldn't. But he should not be advising presidents over health policy, over pandemic policy at all, ever. That should be seen as a as a as just as bad as like having pharma uh, advise uh, you, you know uh, uh, you know the FDA about which drugs to approve and which not to approve. Right, the pharma, pharma shouldn't shouldn't be like the FDA shouldn't be captured by pharma. Health policy shouldn't shouldn't be captured by people like uh, scientific funders like Tony Fauci or Bill Gates. Right, those should be bright ethical lines of the same way. Um, now, I think. Uh, uh, I, I do th the reason the reason I, I push back a, a bit Matt, on this is I do think there are legitimate roles for government in um, in f scientific funding of ideas that that can't be funded really by by private actors in part because there's you know positive externalities that are not capturable right so there may be like you know the, the uh, a, a basic science idea that that's not patentable but is very very important um, I mean I think the government you could you could argue that the government has a role in that Right, because because you're going to have market failure. You want those kinds of ideas to come out, but I do completely agree with you that it's um, if there aren't these like these guidelines, these these sort of ethical guidelines about about how those um, that 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 work goes on, it, it could be more even counterproductive. You you maybe you want to get rid of those ideas rather than have the have the uh, you know a, a, a someone like Tony Fauci saying I am the science alternate yeah. policy. Yeah. Right? So, so I think that there, that uh, that's a it's a complicated question. I, I, I don't. I don't. I. I, I understand the, the gist of your argument. If I, yeah. if I got it right. The and and I could. I could very much see um, an open, transparent process where you you almost want an adversarial relationship between um, the executive branch and the um, grant givers within the institutions and and the private companies that that might be recipients of that. Um, uh, one more example that. We could just go on all day, but um, this, and I don't want to go down the intellectual property rabbit hole. But one of the one of the striking things that happened with the full-throated advocacy of of certain vaccines was an absolute trashing of of alternative therapeutics that 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 were, would not have been profitable to roll out. And I don't know if we're allowed to say the I word or the. What's the other word? But you know what I'm talking about. I think we are now. I don't know. Well, th th that, by the way, is, is another big scandal, right? So um, the NIH, if it has a role on therapeutics, which does, it, it should be funding studies and trials of uh, products 
that the private sector wouldn't fund. Right, so why is remdesivir, why was it approved so quickly? Well, it had, it had a firm, Gilead, which had a very strong interest, still under patent, had a very strong interest in running very quick studies on it and then uh, making sure that the FDA approves it very quickly. And that's exactly what they did right, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the early years of the pandemic. I don't think it's a very good drug but like for, 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 uh, for COVID, but you know, it, it, it got approved very quickly. All the studies were done very quickly. The NIH, as a public actor, it should be uh, running studies on things that private actors have no incentive to run. So it's a scandal we don't know for certain whether ivermectin works. It's a scandal that we don't know for uh, certain whether something like fluvoxamine works, right? Uh, uh, I I think um, the NIH's role was to as vigorously pursue the testing of these repurposed off-patent drugs as much as it intervened in the the, the vaccine uh, testing or more, right? Because there's no reason to put all your eggs in the vaccine basket when you might have these promising uh, drugs that that, that that other people elsewhere are finding might work in certain settings. We don't know exactly when exactly or, or, or exactly the right dosing or, or maybe it doesn't work. Like I think hydroxychloroquine probably doesn't work. Um, you have to like, if you're an NIH, uh, a director like uh, like Collins or Fauci, you, what, what you should do is, is invest in a broad portfolio of products that the private sector doesn't have an incentive to check. Yeah. And they failed at that. Yeah, yeah. And and so going back to the political politicization of all this, um, monoclonal antibodies um, were celebrated until a Republican governor from Florida who might run for president against Joe Biden um, well, that is, embraced that. Story that. Is, that story is unbelievable, right? So monoclonal antibodies... Um, are uh, uh, tested and uh, uh, developed and tested. And so by uh, summer of last year, actually even earlier, uh, they the good trials run on, on monoclonal antibodies. Now they're specific to the particular variants, right? So the, uh, you know, the monoclonal antibodies that worked on, um, in, on when President Trump took them in o- October of 2020 uh, are not the same ones that are being used now with a different variant. Um, but uh, the NIH, evaluates them and says, look, these are useful. 70% reduction in mortality, in, according to one, one uh, uh, mortality and hospitalization risk, according to one study that was published in the New England Journal last uh, 2021. Um, the, the, uh, but we don't deploy them at scale. Instead, we're just, we're, we're saying, look, the only way to manage this is vaccines. But there's a lot of people that aren't taking the vaccines that, 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 that are at risk. And even people that have the vaccine, some of them are getting very sick. Um, why not use them, right? Uh, when uh, there was the Delta wave that hit Florida in 2021, right around this time last year, um, the, uh, the the Florida government, Governor DeSantis, uh, he actually called me and asked me about this, so about this this idea. Is, is he, he deployed them at scale. Uh, he, he put a program in place where, like, if you were sick, you could call and that, you know, it's, <clears throat> with the monoclonal antibodies, you have to get an IV drip. You can't take a pill, right? So normally you, you'd have to go to the hospital for this. So he had people, te- strike teams, come to your house and give you the drip wow. if you were really wow. sick, right? So that yeah. was, it was a really, really good idea. Like, it's how you save lives when you're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, it's how you would want the government to actually behave. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, what happened was— This abs- is why I don't recognize it. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I, I just, I, so it struck me as like this is this is completely reasonable. So what the Biden administration, what they did, is they cut the supply of, of monoclonal antibodies to Florida, citing something called what they called temporal equity, meaning well, we think this, uh, states 
in December are going to need this. You're using up all our supplies now in August, September. Uh, so we're going to cut the supplies so Florida patients die so that someone in Massachusetts can survive later, California can survive later. Um, the weird thing, the, 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 ironic, the ironic, I mean, I don't know if it's not the ironic word, but the tragic thing is that when um, those states got hit, it was with a different variant, and the monoclonal antibodies that would have been useful for the Delta wave were no longer useful then. Um, the, the, the supplies were cut for nothing. And why would you cut supplies? Why not boost manufacturing? Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't make any, it made no sense, other than from, other than trying to punish a Florida government that they disagreed with politically, it made no sense. And why, uh, why would you punish the people of Florida for this? The fact that their that their that their governor had, had was adopting this policy, trying to save their life. Yeah, uh, it's it's a, an undertold story, and I think really a tragic one. It, it was personal for me because by the time my wife Terry got uh, COVID, um, monoclonal antibodies, um, it they had just and I they basically nationalized the supply, um, and and we we couldn't get access, and and luckily her case turned out to be to be fairly mild, but you don't know. And, yeah. and it was the whole point of the therapeutic was to, to mitigate against a, a you, serious case. You know, part of the thing, I think the story is not just the political uh, uh, aspect of, of a Republican governor. I think part of the story is also that the, that the Biden administration's strategy was so focused on the vaccines that they viewed monoclonal antibodies not as an adjunct to try to save lives for people who weren't vaccinated or, or were sick anyways, despite the vaccines. Um, they viewed monoclonal antibodies as a as a threat to the vaccination program that they rolled out. Yeah. Right. So if uh, their their idea was that well, if you tell people that there is this treatment available, then they won't get the vaccine, and therefore we shouldn't tell people about this treatment. We should make this treatment less less available. I, I think that was just a, a cruel thing to do, uh, to because essentially what you're telling people who are, who are going to get sick despite the vaccine, and many of whom didn't didn't take the vaccine, that you should just go die. Yeah. Right? that is that was that was just an unconscionable thing for the for the Biden administration to do. And possible, I'll offer a more cynical view as I've been doing this whole time. Um, um, you wouldn't get the political credit if, if you put all your eggs in the vaccine basket and this is my presidency um, is is saving us from COVID through this vaccine. Um, if there were therapeutics on the table that, that might help or might even do a better job for a lot of patients, um, that's, a, that's a more difficult talking point. But I'm, I'm cynical. You're not. Um, <laughs> I, w- I want to wrap up with this um, question that you kind of dodged earlier um, because we just we just spent an hour explaining the disincentives for good scientists to speak up, and yet by the time you guys wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, um, you must have known that you were going to take a lot of heat. Maybe not nearly as much as you did, but but why why do it? Why do it? So uh, I I um, it was October 2020. Um, I had just been through. S- six very rough months. I'd written this study, I think I mentioned earlier, about the, the antibodies uh, in Santa Clara County, LA County. Um, the response from my institution, Stanford University, was was very negative. Like, they, 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 uh, they, they, I had to go through some very tough times. Uh, the, the press reacted to this study in a very negative way. Like, I, there were hit pieces on my wife, on, on my family. Um, you know, before that, I was just a scientist publishing papers uh, with an audience of, like, you know, if I got 100 people to read my paper, I'd be pretty happy. Um, and now I've got m- millions of people reading my paper, and I'm people very upset with me 
because we found that the, that, that the, the, the disease wasn't as deadly as people originally thought. Um, the, uh, uh, in, in July, August of 2020, I kind of had to make a decision about what I really was about, right? If uh, I could have just gone silent and there's every, uh, every incentive pointed in that direction. Like I just, because like my university was telling me that I could go back to my old career, that'd be, they'd be perfectly fine with me. Um, I, was, I was getting, you know, it was really clear that if I just stopped talking uh, or signed on to the agenda, then that, that they, they would, I'd be fine. Everyone would be, I could go back to being a tenured professor at Stanford, which is a very happy life. I couldn't do it, Matt. I couldn't do it. I, I don't think that the lockdowns are the right thing uh, my job is a, is a health policy person, is a health economist, is an epidemiologist, all pointed in the direction of this is this is just a great wrong, and if I stayed silent now, I don't know how I could look, uh, I could look back with my career with any pride. Um, I, I just couldn't I couldn't. And when the opportunity came up to to work on this Great Barrington Declaration, I was I I didn't I, I I'm it's still the proudest moment of my life. Yeah, and I think both you and uh, Sinatra Goop. Uh, both were born in India. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. So you you saw like um, like one of my beliefs as a laptop class is they can't conceive of what a world would be like where people live on less than two dollars a day, but 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 you both saw that. Yeah. Well, my mom uh, grew up in a Calcutta slum. Uh, it was called Calcutta then, Kolkata now. Um, uh, and uh, uh, when we first came to the United States, my dad worked at a at a uh, at a McDonald's because he couldn't find a job. He's a Electrical engineer eventually got a job as a as a rocket scientist. Turns out, um, but uh, but I uh, um, we lived in public housing. Um, I mean, I I hadn't really thought about that much until the pandemic. But I it's it, I I mean it's clearly colored my views. I mean I I, I know um, from um, from my relatives what it's like to live in a poor country. I know from the stories my mom told what it's like to be really, really, really poor. I, I worked in India when I was a medical student in a, in a rural hospital. I saw firsthand what that is like. Um, it's almost unimaginable to people living in rich countries to understand how close to devastation people really live. Um, and the lockdowns, when they hit, the first thought I had was to the harm it was going to do to poor people everywhere. Um, I, it's you can see it. That's exactly what's happened, um, the, and the, and to me, that's always been the reason I think why I loved economics is it's helped make clear how to get people out of that situation, right? That we don't we we don't want. I mean, poverty is a devastating thing, but unfortunately, a very large fraction of the world still lives in poverty. Um, the lockdowns are a step backward on that, uh, and to me, that was was my very first things think about lockdowns. I had to say something. So where do we find you're obviously still fighting? Um, maybe you've doubled down on fighting. Where do where do we find you, uh, Martin and, and Sinetra? Uh, you're all still speaking out, I believe. Yeah, we are. So uh, Martin and I and Scott Atlas have started a, a new institute called the Academy of Science and Freedom, working with Hillsdale College. Um, so that that you can find uh, uh, we're we're sort of ramping up operations for that. The, the goal there is to restore science to where it belongs in society. Science, as you can probably tell from this sort of conversation, and yeah. I know you share this idea, is is a very very important human endeavor, but it needs to be a human endeavor, something that's used for the cause of freedom, not something to to, to enslave, which is what essentially what the lockdowns ended up being. Um, 
Uh, and that's our, our goal there is to restore science, decentralize science again so that it no, doesn't have this sort of concentrated power. Um, there's the Brownstone Institute, which uh, was funded, founded by Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, Martin, Martin Kulow, uh is, is, has worked very closely with them, where you can find some of the, a lot of the published work, and there have been a lot of great people who've been thinking about what the log times have meant and what the consequences are publishing there. Um, uh, so those, those two places, and I'm going to keep I'm going to be talking about this. I don't really know how to stop talking about it. My family is, is tired, sick and tired of me talking about this, but I think I, I kind of need to yeah. keep going. Well, I like, um, I, I should have said this. I mean, I'm a, I'm a stage four cancer survivor. I would not be alive today if it wasn't for scientific innovation. So when I'm, when I'm criticizing the system, my biggest concern is the credibility that the pharmaceutical companies and science and medical innovation, all of this stuff has been trashed in this process because people don't trust it anymore. And, and we, I, I think we have to restore that credibility. I mean, I, I think you separated from politics, but um, I'm, I'm all in on that. And I would love to, when you guys get more going, I'd love to have that conversation. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this. It's been fantastic. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed that show, make sure that you like and subscribe. Click the little bell so that you get notifications. And if you consume this via podcast, go wherever you want to go. We're everywhere. Kibbe on Liberty. The revolution starts now.